Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 159, Mastering the Jhanas. This week, we speak with the only two Western lay practitioners who are authorized to teach the concentration meditation practice in the lineage of Paak Sayadaw, the famous Burmese jhana master. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with two jhana teachers, Tina Rasmussen and Steven Snyder. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Vince. Yeah. And today, um, since you teach the jhanas, that's going to be the topic that we wanted to explore with you. And just to share a little bit of background for the listeners out there, you guys have been meditating for quite a long time, a few decades apiece at least. But recently, in 2005, you went on a two-month retreat with uh, Venerable Pa'ak Sayada, who's a very kind of well-known and well-regarded teacher in the Burmese tradition. He teaches these kind of traditional Vasudhimaga jhana practice. And so you went with him, and from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, please, you were two of the first Western lay yogis, meaning you weren't monks, who were able to complete his training to kind of the satisfaction or the the specifications, I guess, if you will, the standards, the high standards that he has for that training. And then he asked you to begin teaching, and since you're already partners, um, you're teaching together. Right. Yeah. And so you've started leading, um, recently leading retreats at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, a two-week retreat at the end of the year, and you're teaching, I guess, the same system that you were taught. Right. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and you also wrote a book recently that just came out through Shambhala on the jhana system that Paak teaches, kind of a, a presentation for Westerners. I know he's written a couple books, and I, I looked at one of them called Knowing and Seeing, and it was just like such a behemoth. <laughs> really technical, just hard-hitting, but it was really tough to read, too. And it seems like this book that you've presented is, is maybe more accessible for Westerners, like a good place to start. It's called Practicing the Jhanas, Traditional Concentration Meditation, as presented by the Venerable Pa'ak Zayada. Yeah, so I wanted to just ask you guys some questions around your experience practicing the jhanas, what you've learned teaching them, and just about the jhanas in general. I guess maybe a good place to start would just be to ask for a little bit of an overview of the training you actually went through with Pa'ak on that two-month retreat. And since in the book you really write also from your first-person experience, like how you were actually experiencing these states and the training leading up to them, it'd be cool to hear both some of that first-person subjective report and also what kind of technique you're doing and and that sort of from the outside as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Probably the easiest way to give you a sense of the practices that we did in the two-month retreat that we spent with the Saida would be to just give you a brief overview of the progression of the Samatha practice. Would that be helpful? Yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So this is from the chart that's at the back of our book. And I'll just go through this really briefly. Basically, our whole book outlines each of these practices. So Pawak Saida uses the Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, as the main object that you start the Samatha practice with. 
So you start with mindfulness of breathing at the what we call the Anapana spot. It's kind of a territory that's in between the upper lip and the nostril. So you're not actually following the breath into the body or out of the body. You're knowing it somewhere in that vicinity. Then that object is used. There's a whole, we actually have added a whole new chapter to our Shambhala version of our book on the territory from the time you first sit down first sit to first jhana and there's a lot of sort of technical details in that region and that's where really most of the people spend the majority of time is in that territory so we won't go into all the detail of that but eventually at some point if the practice progresses the first jhana will arise and then you use the mindfulness of breathing to go first second third fourth jhana and one one thing also vince is as we're presenting this we're really trying to reframe it rather than people get jhana as a kind of attainment, we're framing it as when jhana arises. Mm. Because it actually is more, it's technically more true how that works. And it takes it out of the personal in terms of, I went on retreat and either I got it or I didn't get it, you see. And if it's working with purification of mind, then as part of the purification of mind, did jhana arise or not arise is certainly a valid question. But it doesn't invalidate the process and the and what's gone on in purification of mind for the person. Mm. Right. There's a way we really look at it, and this is very helpful for for yogis as a ripening, where as the purification of mind is happening, at some point there's the potential for the ripening. It's like with an avocado; you can't put it in the oven and expect it to ripen. It's got to ripen in its own time. So that's really more how the actual process of the purification of mind works and then if a jhana arises as a result of that it's more of a byproduct than the point of the practice i see okay so then we have the first four jhanas then in this progression as you know the buddha had about 40 meditation objects so there's many many objects that are part of the samatha practice so the way the side out teaches the progression you then go to the 32 body parts practice And we won't go into a lot of detail, but this is a practice in which you take different body parts as the object and then then, then focus on them in groups. And one of the 32 body parts is the skeleton. So then after you've done the 32 body parts, then you use the skeleton as the object. Really working towards focusing on the back of the skull as the object, which bears a strong resemblance to the white casina. And that becomes a stepping stone to doing the casinas. A casina is really a a mind-produced image of a disc-shaped object that's either a color or an element or light or space. So there's 10 casinas, and I'll just read them off. White, Nila, which is kind of a blue, black, brown color. Yellow, red, earth, water, fire, wind, light, and space. So then you shift from the Anapanasati and you use each of those casinas as an object to go through the four jhanas. So you can imagine that gets pretty intense spending that amount of hours with a new object building the concentration. Then the earth casina is used as a starting point to access the immaterial jhanas. And then the progression of the practice goes through the four immaterial jhanas the base of boundless space, the base of boundless consciousness, the base of nothingness, and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. 
And then the practice goes on to using all of the casinas as the object to go through the upper jhanas as well. And then once all of that is done, then the practices switch over to the sublime abiding. So we know these in the West as the Brahma Viharas. And that's done very similarly to what we've practiced here. And then the last of those is the protective meditations. And these are really important going into the Vipassana practice as a kind of a refuge for the practice. And those are the recollection of the Buddha, the recollection of death, the metta practice. Yeah, so those are the protective meditations. And then you go on to four elements, which is the ending of the Samatha practice and the beginning of the Vipassana. We can talk more about that when we talk about Vipassana, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe it'd be helpful just to give a sense. When you describe it this way, it sounds like it's this very quick thing. And yet, I know reading reading your descriptions, like that you're spending, for instance, three hours in a particular kind of state. And so, I wonder maybe if you could say a little bit about the actual state, if you can talk about it, and how you're kind of defining or describing jhana. Well, there's three levels of concentration, and this is where what we found with yogis coming to us, some of whom have maybe done other practices, is that there's a lot of confusions about the levels of concentration, momentary access, and absorption. Because the jhana factors of joy, happiness, one-pointedness, and applied and sustained attention arise even in momentary concentration. So a lot of times people will think that just because they're feeling PT, that's jhana. In the Pawak tradition, there's very distinct stages between momentary access and full absorption that are very different. And also there's the jhana masteries, which in the detailed version, which we learned, and it's our understanding that we're the only... um, Western lay people who have been taught the detailed version. Of the Samatha with the Saido. Right. So there's five jhana masteries, and one of those, especially with first jhana, is to be in the full absorption for three hours. Uninterrupted for three hours. Yeah. What is that like from the inside? Like, what's it like to be interrupted or, or to be uninterrupted? People get confused sometimes about what jhana is, and there is awareness, obviously, in that condition in that state of the object and of the jhana factors. So it's very, um, you know, I mean, this is a tranquility and concentration practice. So there's a lot of serenity and there's a lot of one-pointedness on the object. When the concentration gets strong enough, the awareness really locks onto the object in a way that is very stable. The side out talked to us about what he calls slight imperfection of jhana, where you might kind of pop out into a high level of access and then go back in. And if that's not happening too much, then that's considered to be full absorption. Mm. But if there's thought arising, that is not jhana. In this tradition, that's one of the characteristics of jhana is that there is no thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, this is where a lot of people, I think, get confused about access concentration versus full absorption because even with the retreat we just did, there were yogis who had really high access concentration, the jhana factors were all present, but there's a whole progression with the nimitta, which is a, a visual light effect that is a byproduct of the mind unifying. And that becomes an integral part of actually the full jhana absorption arising. So people could have access concentration and the jhana factors without ever really having a full absorption. If you've never experienced the full absorption, it's easy to think that that is a jhana. 
and in this tradition, those are some of the distinctions. Okay. And, well, one of the distinction is in, in this tradition, we never take a, a John Factor as the object. And some of the presentations that are available in the West, that is part of the, the practice. Right. So, in, in this practice, and, and it really makes sense if you think about it logically, the Buddha was trying to help people be free from suffering from attachments that were from either desire or aversion or delusion. And it's pretty pleasant when those jhana factors start arising. So, to shift your whole awareness over to a jhana factor really cultivates a lot of desire. And when you're using instead something neutral like the breath, there's a way that the practice can progress in such a way that you're actually purifying the mind stream because you have a neutral object. And so, as the first, second, third, fourth jhana progress, in the second jhana, PT, which is joy or rapture, after the second jhana and moving on to the third, that drops. So, if you have a lot of attachment to the jhana factors, in a way, you're cultivating desire. So, when you're using a neutral object like the breath, it's easier to... First of all, build the concentration because your object isn't changing all the time. And secondly, you can really experience the purification of mind in such a way that actually supports the practice more fully. And it's important to make the distinction that the jhana factor is the result of concentration. So, if PT is arising, that's different from actually feeling emotional joy because the PT is being produced based upon the level of concentration. So, if one then moves to that as an object, one is no longer concentrating on the breath. So, sooner or later, that concentration begins to wane and that PT produced by concentration is going to fade. But if you're actually just finding joy in your body or in your heart, you're thinking of a loved one, you're listening to music that's beautiful or seeing something in nature that's beautiful, that's not PT because it's not produced based on the concentration, if you follow. Okay. Interesting. And you guys are already started to hint at this with talking about the purification of the mind stream. And I wondered if you could maybe share a little bit about what the benefits are, because, you know, we're such a, a benefit-oriented utilitarian culture. Um, what the benefits are of, of the kind of training in jhana and the mastery of jhana traditionally? Sure. Well, probably the best place to start is to look at it as a daily practice. And the concentration practice as a daily practice, it's the very same practice. It's bringing the awareness to the breath as it crosses what we're calling the anapana spot, which is that territory Tina referred to between the nostrils and the upper lip, which is also not the skin. So, I want to make that distinction. As a daily practice, one can do concentration meditation, which then both develops the concentration, the ability to focus and turn away from distractions that are taking one off. Because clearly, for example, right now, if we were to try to focus our, our awareness on our breath, various things would pull us off of that. So, we can see not only what our patterning is around distraction, hindrances, we can also see how to bring it back. And each time we bring it back to the object, we're in effect strengthening that muscle, if you will, of concentration and also cultivating a disinterest in what's distracting or pulling mm -hmm. us away. So, one of the metaphors we use for this territory is the surf zone. Tina was a scuba diver at one point and here in California you can see the scuba divers on the beach sometimes and they'll get all their gear on and then begin to walk backwards into the ocean. And of course they need to because of the flippers, otherwise they'll fall down. There's a nice parallel to this practice because one is 
moving backwards, there's a way you can't see necessarily the waves that are coming. And the waves can come and be a distraction. They can sort of knock you about. And occasionally one can be big enough to knock you down where you might lose, your mask might fall off, the breathing apparatus, the mouthpiece might fall out. And of course, then what do you do? You straighten your gear out, rinse out the sand, and you proceed. So using that surf zone metaphor, when one first goes into this practice, the initial waves that one meets or meet one are the exterior distractions. So for example, on retreat, it can be things like someone near you is breathing too loudly, that you can hear birds singing outside, someone's coming in or out of the meditation hall in a way that's distracting. It's all these external stimulus that can be distracting. And as those settle and as the concentration deepens, then it's the internal distractions that will be coming up. Our habituated thinking, the various defilement, as Tina mentioned, the, the, the greed, uh, aversion, and delusion patterning that people have, and the hindrances that people have. And, and the hindrances are classic in Buddhism, which are sense desires, one, ill will, aversion, two, sloth and torpor is three, restlessness and remorse is four, and five is doubt. So those start coming up where people will have a reaction to the practice of you know, this is difficult or everyone else is getting it, I'm not. All these kinds of things come up. And again, one keeps returning to the object, which is the breath crossing at the anapana spot, knowing the breath as it crosses. And so that's always our object. The instruction here is very simple. The application is very challenging because of our own patterning and our own distractions. And every time we turn away, Vince, our connection to this patterning, our connection to our thinking, we start moving away from kind of how we see ourselves and who we are. And that lessens that attachment and allows the practice to begin developing in what, as we can refer to it, where the practice begins to do you. Yeah, so there's, I mean, with the purification of mind, at its most basic, Stephen talked about strengthening the muscle. So we're really cultivating the ability to turn away from things that cause us to suffer. That's the most basic benefit, and people can see this in daily practice, and even more so when they've done an intensive period, like driving a car. Somebody could cut me off in traffic, and I could feel cranky about that for two minutes or five minutes, and who's suffering as a result of that? I am. Or I could be disinterested and be able to turn away from it because there's a space that's been cultivated because when I do this practice over and over again, that's what I'm building within my own capacity is the ability to turn away from things that cause me to suffer. So what we see is that people can have habit patterns that can be reconditioned to some extent by doing this practice. And part of that loosening of the patterning is very helpful as one moves on in this practice. It's both that and also the concentration, the laser-like quality of the concentration that one then moves into Vipassana with, where Vipassana, of course, is a purification of view. So it's really an examination and uprooting of our attachment. And in this tradition, that has to do with an analysis through this kind of concentration of materiality, mentality, and then dependent origination along with some other practices. Right. So the Buddha talked about 
the jhanas and the concentration practice all the time. I mean, if you really look at the suttas, he talked about it constantly. I think it's in about a third of the suttas. And he was doing this practice at the moment of his death. So the idea that it's irrelevant and it wasn't an integral part of the path really doesn't bear up if you read what he actually said. Really, where does it fit in the place of the progression? You've got the sila, the wholesomeness, which we could talk about, but we probably won't right now too much, but we do emphasize it in our teaching. And then you've got the samatha, which is the purification of the mind stream. So here, the work is being done internally in terms of your own mind stream being more and more free of hindrances, for one thing, having a settling, which is the serenity, and then, as Stephen was saying, developing this laser-like concentration that can then be turned towards other things, either in daily life or in spiritual practice in the Vipassana. And then you've got the Vipassana where you're actually using that. So to go to the Vipassana without that, it can be done, but wouldn't you rather have a laser-like awareness with which to do it? And this is why the Buddha thought it was so important. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information, and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.